0: I'm David Liu, a rheumatologist and clinical pharmacologist from Melbourne, Australia, and welcome once again to Clinical Realities, a podcast miniseries from the Alliance of Rheumatology addressing unmet need in rheumatology. There's been an increasing appreciation in rheumatology that sex and gender matter in rheumatology in a meaningful way. Biological sex impacts so much of immunology and the social impacts of gender affect a lot of how our patients operate in their real world affecting their clinical outcomes substantially. The Lancet Rheumatology recently convened a summit on sex and gender in rheumatology, available for replay online now. And a key session was a roundtable discussion about sex and gender in research design and reporting. Ultimately, implications for patients hinge on the way we conduct research and whether those studies represent the reality of the patients that we treat. And this roundtable addressed some of these key issues. I spoke to the key presenters in the session before and after the event and got their thoughts. Someone who has led the field is Dr. Shirin Haidari, who leads GENDRO, a non-government organisation advancing equity through the integration of sex and gender dimensions in research. She has been both a high-profile researcher and journal editor and has seen the issues of sex and gender play out in real life, but she's also a rheumatology patient living with axial spondyloarthritis herself. So I asked her, why does accounting for sex and gender matter in rheumatology research?
1: Well, I mean, we know uh, that both biological sex and gender as a social construct and socioeconomic uh, kind of determinant has really important influence on our health and well-being. Uh, We know that biological sex can have influence on the susceptibility to disease, uh, drug metabolism, immune response, both to vaccines, autogens, pathogens, uh, and a number of different biological aspects that kind of, results in differential experience of disease and susceptibility and presentation of disease. And at the same time, we know that gender plays an important role in our experience of, you know, illness, wellness, disease, and, you know, our interaction with providers, access to accurate health information, uh, to act, adequate health services, appropriate health services, how we are treated in the healthcare system, affordability, uh, for example, all of those are very gendered and can result in differential experiences uh, that can result in inequities in health. And I'm sure that's also the case for the rheumatology in particular.
0: Oh, absolutely. Why do you think that we've been traditionally not good at accounting for sex and gender in research? Where do you think that it all went wrong?
1: Well, we should not shy away uh, from the fact that medical research has been a male endeavour for many, many years, that it has really been shaped by, um, again, my view, androcentric thinking, and it has had a protectionist, view in terms of excluding pregnant women and you know even childbearing women in terms of protecting the unborn fetus from potential you know harms of uh, experimental drugs for example and so on and so forth so again a lot of those considerations along the side of perhaps some way to try to simplify science again including multiple variables and looking at different diversities and complexities makes science more difficult and more challenging i think that has resulted in a historical exclusion mostly of women again marginalized population from clinical research in particular but in research overall and created a system where the white male uh body uh, or experience has been uh, made the point of the reference and everything else has been extrapolated based on that, sometimes inaccurately. And we see that more and more in health research and clinical research where there are important differences that has been overlooked that results in mis- misdiagnosis, delay in diagnosis, wrong treatment, and sometimes even harm.
0: Mm, absolutely. So I... I'm conscious as well that I've heard you say everyone has a sex, everyone has a gender, and it affects the outcomes that we have. I guess it, it doesn't just affect women, that they're important impacts both ways.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we are also talking about that some aspects really need to be looked at from a more holistic point of view. Again, for, as an example, breast cancer in male are often really not considered even important, which they I cure as well. Uh, and I think there are lots of, of course, very sex-specific diseases, ovarian cancer, perhaps, or prostate cancer. But there are also a lot of sex and gender differences in kind of a more disease that can also affect men differently. And I think really when it comes to uh, clinical and medical research, we might have more knowledge around uh, male bodies and male sex but I think the issues around gender is less uh, examined in terms of health-seeking behavior. We know that the men have a poorer health-seeking behavior. They are delaying often seeking health. That's very much also associated with that notion of masculinity uh, that is, you know, toughed out and, you know, Again, a lot of those conceptions, it's very much plays out in the perception of the providers has come out in pain research, for instance, in consumption patterns. So I think there are definitely uh, aspects that relates to men's health that also needs to be taken into account from a gender point
0: of view. So let's talk a little bit about gender as opposed to sex. And I think that as rheumatologists, we're very attuned to thinking about the biological plausibility behind things and how that might drive um, differences between subpopulations of our patients. But gender plays such an important role that I think we're probably, have, well, we definitely have underrecognized in the past.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think sometimes gender plays an even greater role uh, than sex. I mean, sex definitely is important to capture in in studies in terms of presentation and uh, and drug development so on and so forth, but gender is everywhere, is institutionalized uh, in in our systems, in our societies Uh, with respect to, I mean again just look at something that we think is totally unrelated to health and wellness is the gender pay gap. It has a direct impact with regard to access to uh, services and health uh, services as well as medications that are often not covered by insurances. So again, there are lots of other gender implications that is often forgotten when we're looking at uh, health in a more holistic way.
0: Hmm. Now, I know that you're not a rheumatologist, but you are in fact a rheumatology patient and you yourself have axial spondyloarthritis. Yes, that's correct. So how have you found that your sex and gender have affected your experience as a patient?
1: And that is very interesting. Uh, I, I was diagnosed for many, many years ago in my twenties, and, and now I realize that again, you know, my sex and gender played an important role in why I was diagnosed very late. Uh, I did suffer from a lot of pain in my back. I visited different doctors. I even had X-rays, and everybody's like, "Yeah, well." And then by the time I was diagnosed, it has probably you know, past five, six years, and. I remember my rheumatologist said, "Oh, this is very unusual because this is so predominantly a male disease." And I said, "Oh, well, okay, well, I'm supposed to be the exception to the rule." And it's so interesting to see how the data and evidence shows it's not a male disease. It's just that it's uh, either either the presentation of disease and again, I'm not a rheumatologist, is perhaps different or the perception. Of the providers, uh, this is a male disease, and so that's why it's probably something else in a woman has resulted in a delay in diagnosis and delay in uh, initiation of appropriate treatment.
0: In terms of diagnosis, we know that our patients who are female are more likely to have non-radiographic disease and radiographic disease, so we're less likely to see their disease on X-rays. We we're clearly bad at, as you said, it at diagnosing we've traditionally been bad at diagnosing patients female patients with axial spondyloarthritis especially because a lot of the radiographic disease that does exist doesn't exist in the traditional places not in the sacroiliac joints necessarily but perhaps in the neck rather than the lumbar spine is this something that's just isolated to us or is this a problem that exists more broadly?
1: I think that's definitely a problem that exists more broadly <laughs> across disease areas, I would say. And I think, you know, that goes back to the issue that the evidence that we collect and we look at is often not, you know, uh, reflecting the reality. I mean, most of the trials have often been uh, not gender balanced. And again, I looked at a couple of studies that you sent. And in one study, they had looked at a systematic review and it was a kind of huge number of patients uh, in the systematic review over, I, I think, 10 12,000 patients and only 30% were women. Uh, So you see that, of course, you know, with that, you're probably not capturing the diversity of symptoms or you're perhaps not uh, even looking at uh, doing a sex and gender-based analysis to understand that it might be a differential symptoms, that it might be a different drug response, but even also around acceptability of drugs. Um, side effects, adverse events. I think a lot of those issues are often not captured in the research that we conduct, and that's where the problem starts.
0: Mm. And I guess you mentioned before as well the cognitive bias that we as clinicians often have had that we think about. This is a, as a male disease. I guess that's not something that's isolated to actual spondylarthritis either, is it?
1: No, no, absolutely not. And, I, and again, it is probably a myth, but there is some reality to that, that the pain experienced by men are taken more seriously by doctors rather than the pain experienced by women. And there are might be biological differences in the experience of pain as such or the severity of pain. Again, this is not my research area, but I have seen that there has been studies looking at that. But the perception of pain, both from the patients but of provider, also play an important role. So we do need to also challenge some of our very persistent and entrenched gender uh, norms and perceptions, around you know, pain, uh, disease, uh, illness, wellness, uh, and also expression of those.
0: I guess as well we know in axial arthritis that we have an issue with identifying the disease burden that women face. Uh, we know that when we look at objective measures that we see similar disease activity between men and women, but we underestimate the impact on women, partially because we see less radiographic disease, a slower radiographic progression where it exists, and lower CRPs, lower lower inflammatory mm-hmm. markers. So I, I suppose that this is also a broader issue right throughout medicine. That
2: yeah.
0: yeah, there are plenty of times when the disease burns underestimated in women.
1: Yeah. And how are those markers defined? Where are the threshold and ranges? You know, do they were the baseline different already from the first place or not because that's also important you know when you're you' you know one marker is perhaps you know exceeding the, the reference point what was the reference point in the first place mm-hmm. uh, and I think no those those nuances are often not captured but I want to also raise that the gender aspects goes beyond just the differences it also goes beyond you know issues related to pregnancy uh, and we talked about it in the panel last that you know the exclusion of pregnant woman in clinical trials it has a major impact on women's health because again, you know, women don't stop being suffering from a disease just because they're pregnant. At the same time, either they stop their medication and they have a lot of of course suffering and pain and you know difficulties during the pregnancy, or they're using drugs that are not necessarily proven efficacious, eff, you know, effective, or even safe during pregnancy for themselves as well as for their children. Mm-hmm. So I think that those dimensions are important to also capture, as well as issues related that are non-medical. And I don't know in the, in the field of rheumatology, for example, exercise is an important point, uh, physical exercise. But think about, you know, people that have children, women that are uh, working double shifts, single mothers, and, you know, how those gender aspects also play a role in the, in the possibility or feasibility of, uh, you know, engaging a regular physical exercise. I think there are lots of different dimensions to that. Of course, also links to mental health and psychosocial support and stress. So again, we really need to broaden up our perception about what sex and gender means from the narrow uh, distinction of the binary as well, as well as just disease uh, differences.
0: Mm. I guess it has affected the way we've developed pharmacotherapies as well. Mm. Perhaps we've traditionally uh, enrolled men more than women in yeah. our studies. How do we start to go about trying to address the issues that have led to that Bias that's been baked in to our the disease in the way we perceive our diseases and the way we treat our diseases.
1: Yeah. And I think that is uh, really needs a multi um, sectoral approach, if I may say so, where we do need to tackle that from different entry points in the entire research and drug development and r and d uh, kind of a sector where, All of us play an important role, of course, as researchers, raising awareness, making sure that the information about these dimensions are constantly communicated, but research ethics committees play an important role to make sure that trials are only approved, protocols are only approved when these dimensions are adequately captured in the design, Uh, research Again, we have talked about journals' role with the Sager guidelines that play an important role for demanding that uh, data are made available and published, disaggregated by sex and uh, gender, as well as um, trying to encourage a sex and gender-based analysis to the extent it's possible, and all the other aspects uh, that, again, uh, we really need to kind of, and research funding agencies as well, which play an important role to make sure that, you know, grants that are coming in uh, are already including these aspects into uh, the the kind of study design.
0: If sex and gender are important in studying important questions in rheumatology, then what should we be doing about it? The obvious reply is that we just need to do the right statistical analysis to account for sex and gender in the right way. So once we're through a study, can we use statistical analysis to compensate, to adequately account for sex and gender differences? Well, the answer, unsurprisingly, is yes and no. I asked James Wason, Professor of Biostatistics at Newcastle University.
3: So often clinical trials are looking at the average effect of a new treatment across the trial population. So the people who agree to be enrolled in the trial and who are eligible for the trial. And that causes a number of issues with sex and gender. So the average treatment effect might be misleading when you're considering different drugs may work differently for for different subgroups of people. And that could be the case for, for sex and gender. Uh, Also, whether the trial population, so those who meet the inclusion-exclusion criteria and agree to take part in the trial, whether they're representative of the broader patient population is is, uh, often not the case. And that could be because of the inclusion-exclusion criteria themselves, so whether the fact that there might be certain criteria like not having taken a previous biologic is quite common in in rheumatology trials whether that means that people are being excluded that makes the trial population less representative but also taking part in a clinical trial as a participant is is often quite burdensome with a lot of research visits and maybe the requirement for, for certain invasive procedures for Uh, gathering outcomes and that might mean that people who agree to take part in the trial are are not representative of the broader patient population. Mm -hmm. Lastly you know talking to to patients often they they don't get told about trials so whether or not the the people who are being told about the opportunities to take part in trials are representative of the entire patient population Mm -hmm. is not necessarily the case. So there's lots of reasons that uh, estimating the average effect in a clinical trial across everyone who enrolled in the trial might not be a completely reliable estimate of the effect of the intervention in the patient population.
0: Mm. How do we look at clinical trials where there seems to be quite a stark difference in clinical response uh, between men and women? I'm thinking in particular of uh, biologic therapies in axial spondyloarthritis that we see seemingly quite a big gap. How do we go about trying to uh, analyse that in an equitable manner?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And that leads to a common type of analysis used in trial called subgroup analysis. So the main Analysis of the trial would be to estimate the treatment effect in everyone, but a subgroup analysis would allow you to estimate the effect separately in in different subgroups, for example, men and women. So that gives you the estimated treatment effects in, in the different subgroups, and it also allows you to test whether there's a difference in the treatment effect, whether the drug, for example, works differently in the different subgroups, that's called an interaction test so these are things that we we can do and trials routinely uh, do that type of thing but it has some challenges so unfortunately the the power to detect an interaction so to, to detect a different treatment effect between men and women for example is going to generally be pretty low unless there, there is actually genuinely a huge difference in the treatment effect so often subgroup analysis is underpowered and if if you were if your primary question was whether the the drug works differently in men and women, you'd need a, a much bigger trial than if your trial was looking at the average effect of a the drug in everyone.
0: So while statistical analysis accounting for sex and gender in a meaningful way is important, designing research that, from the outset, will represent patients by sex and gender is critical. I asked Cheryl Barnaby, Professor of Rheumatology at the University of Calgary in Canada, why this is the case.
2: If the results are really... Contextualized to that population then they will result in those meaningful changes that we want to see in practice you know coming up with a recommendation that doesn't work for a community or a population can actually worsen the inequities that exist because if your intervention or your guideline or whatever it might be that you're creating is just set to the general population and you know this approach is what's effective it is taken up by that general population they see the benefit of it but if it doesn't reflect what another subgroup within that population needs they're going to actually have worse outcomes or or stay stagnant and so that ratio of benefit just you know keeps growing for one group and that we're just going to see more problems emerge over time. So I really hope that what it actually does is to bring everybody back up to this is actually a, a guideline that works for me. This is actually an intervention that works for me. I'm comfortable with the risks that might be involved in it because this has been studied in people like me. So I, I keep hoping that um, eventually we get to this place where the thing things that we're doing actually make a, a difference in outcomes. It's hard to watch and wait and see for years and years for that to happen. But <laughs> we, we hopefully will um, see that improvement over time.
0: This is far from straightforward in practice, though. I asked Karen Schreiber, a rheumatologist in Aarhus in Denmark, who has been running a trial in women with antiphospholipid syndrome, preparing for pregnancy, comparing hydroxychloroquine to placebo and looking at pregnancy outcomes. She told me about the frustrations that she has encountered in running a study where sex and gender considerations are unavoidable.
4: And I think this is the major challenge of all clinical trials, but especially pregnancy trials are, are very unique and difficult to conduct. And I think these trials deserve a little bit of extra support in a way. Um, so,
0: Why are yeah. they so difficult to conduct? What makes them so challenging?
4: So... In the UK, for example, a pregnancy trial is per se classified as a high-risk study. So that means your monitoring plans are tighter compared to um, studies in non-pregnant women, for example. That makes them more expensive, so you need more funding. And I think on a local level, so for example, in local R&Ds or even our local sponsor, you you would be perceived as a high-risk study. And even though you're using a drug which you have plenty of safety data on such as hydroxychloroquine a study is is still uh, the smpc says it's not uh, to be used in in, in pregnant women but you, you this is what we do and this is what we advise and and we are just classified as a high risk trial per se i think that's what ma-
0: what makes it difficult and do you think that your patients appreciated having that extra protection or do you think that that frustrated them not being able to enter a trial more readily? Did patients miss out on getting into the trial because of these kind of things?
4: I mean, we, we had to uh, obviously inform our patients that we were planning eye and ear assessments um, and that was added in our, into our patient information sheets, of course. I think it could potentially prevent patients from entering the study because suddenly you would tell them, well, we need to do these eye and ear assessments also on your baby. Whereas in clinical practice, we would just treat pregnant women. For example, I mean, we use hydroxychloroquine in, in lupus patients and we don't do eye and assessments of neither the, the, the baby or the mother, unless it's clinically indicated. But I, I think it has the potential to, uh, to prevent patients from entering the trial, yes.
0: It seems far from easy to hit the right balance, building something which is inclusive but not overburdensome. I asked Karen how that reflected in practice, in her study.
4: It's like a vicious circle, isn't it? Because if you're classified as a, as a high-risk study, this will inform how the other collaborators need to act upon the framework that they are being giving. So I think it is, it is really challenging. And I also think by, by making pregnancy trials difficult, you harm a population
0: disproportionately. So knowing these differences, what do we really need to be thinking about when designing studies and the environment around them in an equitable way? I asked Cheryl Barnaby, who had to consider this in depth in her own work.
2: So I believe that uh, what we really have started to focus on here uh, in our country is including considerations relevant to sex and gender across the entire process of the research. It's not just once I've collected data, I'm going to report some stratified analysis. It's actually reconsidering the entire process from the start And so first, I think about, well, yes, it's easy to recruit people who identify as women, people who identify as men. We can look at biological sex. That's what most of our uh, studies will do because that's the way people have collected this information over time. But we also have other populations that are really... We don't know the prevalence of RA in people who identify as gender diverse or of different sexual orientation than the norm or the, you know, the accepted. And so we really have to think about how do we reach with those communities to start to make sure that this research is actually important to their community? What are the things that we need to do as investigators to prepare ourselves for conversing and interacting with people to make sure our language is safe and that we're not stigmatizing further? So so what we will have to do even in our grant submissions here in Canada to have anything approved is to talk about these these considerations. Have we really thought about the sex distribution or the gender distribution of the diseases that we're studying and how are we going to make sure that we include those people in the study in an authentic way? And that it involves a lot of engagement with the community, but it also means that we're thinking about different ways of recruiting perhaps. So is there people in the research team who also identify as gender diverse who then are reflected um, that makes the participants feel more welcome or or more comfortable or have that trust that they will be heard and they will not be stigmatized further in the in the research process we might have to think about different ways of retaining people in the study as well what are the things that work best for that community and then once we get to the results you know people will want to see oh there's a, a stratified analysis by this or there's a particular lens in the analysis and that but it's always thinking a little bit deeper than that what are the ways that we can actually make sure that we're inclusive and make sure that the results are actually applicable and useful for that population as well
0: okay so when we look at the studies that have been run and we're looking at um well i looking at how they've recruited or trying to interpret their results how do we know that we have the right representations for our studies that we are running
2: yeah, this is, it's extremely difficult, I would say. We can look at population statistics to get some sense of what should be the proportion of people represented from each type of of group, um, but we really don't have data in rheumatology about the epidemiology as it affects people who are gender diverse, different sexual orientations. That's not really something that's been common. And we know that the population demographics underneath um, are really not representative of the truth because people have been reluctant to identify or they haven't had the opportunity to identify either in some of our um, statistics that we gather at a nation level. Mm. So I mean it, it, it's it's tricky because we don't know and is one person enough to represent the entire community in the study? Uh, you know, if we're thinking about transgender population, We know that the proportion of people who identify as transgender here anyways is very small, but one person, you know, might not be the representative of community. And so we try to also use methods to bring more people from that community through trusted advisors. So it can be something called like respondent driven sampling uh, or snowball methods. So. You have one person; they bring more people into the study, uh, and then that way you're actually gathering more and more representation throughout that process.
0: So, I guess this is something that we haven't done well in the past. What do you think the cons? Well, do you think that there have been points when we have, uh, in the in the past, in the recent past, when we've started to do that a little bit better? And what is what are the consequences of not being doing it properly um, in the past been? Mm-hmm.
2: You know, we actually learned about that experience uh, with some of the work we were doing here in Canada around making sure that equity considerations were brought into guidelines. And so, when we set out to start that work, sex and gender considerations for rheumatology guideline implementation was a priority. And as we were going through the process of collecting whatever randomized controlled trial data was available or observational data that was available, Um, we really, and then we started to recruit some patients to talk to us about implementation of guidelines. Um, We ran into the trouble where all of a sudden, we're only recruiting women of reproductive age. And we did not get those perspectives and viewpoints from a more diverse community. And so when we came to actually writing what the equity considerations should be for different sex and gender populations, we were stuck with no information about certain groups, we could only talk about women of reproductive age. And so it really left a hole in the work and left us basically guessing what might be appropriate implementation for somebody who identifies as the transgender community or, um, you know, anything – along those same lines. We just had no data. So we're going back and repeating this process now uh, with the same questions, but making sure that we're partnered with community members uh, who do identify as gender diverse or of different sexual orientations so that we can make sure that guideline implementation is considered from their perspectives as well. Mm -hmm. So we just want to try to be as complete, as representative as possible and not continue to, Ignore groups that are in the minority here. It's essentially humility um, that there will be mistakes made, there is learning to ha- be had, um, but if we recognize those, hopefully we continue to build that
0: trust. Ultimately, actualizing the process in research is important, but what holds us to account for anything in research is the reporting to funders, to ethics bodies, to journals, to regulators. Also, that the right outcomes follow through to patients. If sex and gender are important in rheumatology research, how can we make sure that it's reflected? I put it to Cheryl, who in our world should take ultimate account for the problem?
2: Well, certainly here, our experience is that the funders will, you know, that your application will not be approved if you haven't properly addressed this. you know, then you have to think about who's reviewing and do they have the ability to actually assess whether that's accurate or not, or if you've said (laughs) or proposed the right things. But I, I think what you bring up is really important because there's things that you can say at the outset that I will do this and people might feel reassured that that is going to be honest and actually done. And then there's what's what happens once you have <laughs> the study underway. You know, you've got the pressure to publish, you've got the pressure to get the results out so something gets, you know, pushed out to market or whatever it might be. And so I think having those checkpoints along the entire spectrum uh, will keep people honest and will also enforce that this isn't just, you know, a fly by night kind of fad that we're having in research like this is actually reality this is how we are going to be working for the remainder of our careers and hopefully for generations of future researchers to come as well that this is it's no longer acceptable to just approach things the way that we always have we have to really shift and move that needle to uh, a new reality and a new way of, of working. Um, so if we can have people all along the way, so whether that be the regulators say, nope, I don't see the appropriate sex and gender analysis in this data. You know, it's a no-go from my perspective. Uh, Journals, um, we have done some things around race in some of the journals that I'm involved in uh, and reporting of race and ethnicity in an appropriate way. It's easy, you know, it's just another extension of that. Let's do sex and gender as well. Like, if we keep pushing the, the expectations, people will have to rise to meet them.
0: So what does that mean in practice, particularly when it comes to the end product in journals? The SAGER guidelines, which Sharon has led the development and dissemination of, hold up standards for reporting sex and gender in research, providing clear guidance at every stage of a paper as to how to articulate the impact of sex and gender and ensure that it can be assessed in practical ways, which critically include reporting results disaggregated by sex and gender so that the differential responses in patients can be understood I asked her how it has helped us improve our reporting.
1: The SAGER guidelines—it stands for Sex and Gender Equity in Research uh, Guidelines—were published in 2016 and developed uh, through a very consultative and lengthy approach. It took us a couple of years to really develop those guidelines, really for addressing this gender bias research and reporting and. We thought that editors play an important role. They have played an important role in the past to uh, improve the standard of research and reporting, and we hope that the Sager Guidelines would help addressing the the gender-blind reporting of research in uh, academic journals. Again, in the beginning, we met a lot of resistance, but again, I will see that in 2022, a number of journals have been adopting it, implementing it, now more and more uh, Publishers are incorporating that in their instructions to authors, as well as in the editorial flowcharts and processes. So there is really a, a rapid uptake of uh, the Sager guidelines. And again, to what extent they are now currently being enforced or implemented, that remains to be seen. But we are definitely on right track.
0: And I guess they're quite intuitive in that they go along the breadth of the uh, of the of the process that a paper would go through and that's your perspective from being an, a, a previously an editor of a major journal and that it goes about to try and get investigators to think uh, about sex and gender reporting doesn't it
1: yeah, exactly. I think, you know, that, that process is also a little bit of an awareness raising mm-hmm. that as editors, uh, not only we can enforce reporting of these dimensions, we can also help in raising awareness about these are important aspects, making authors and researchers reflect on those in their, in their, in their kind of manuscripts in their papers, both in the introduction, maybe encouraging them to look at the existing literature to what extent are these aspects expected, making them to uh, discuss the implications of a gender-blind research or gender-unbalanced study on the interpretation of the findings. And I think all of those step-by-step can raise increasing awareness and hopefully result in a, a change in practice for the future research design and conduct
0: as well. Before we get to publishing the research, before we get to even conducting the research, how can we apply similar logical improvement earlier in the process so those standards can be integrated and not a hurried afterthought? For Sharon, it's a problem that she's acutely aware of.
1: What I would really like to talk about is that the role of other gatekeepers in the entire research system. Uh, We work closely with research funding agencies and they are more and more introducing such uh, criteria in the research grant application. One gatekeeper has fallen off the radar and now we are trying to kind of really approach that is research ethics committees and uh, IRBs. So we are hoping to develop a Sager guidelines that is adopted for research ethics committees to make sure that they also um, kind of play their role in incorporating these aspects in their evaluations of research protocols.
0: There is a lot for us to take on and clearly work for us to be more vigilant at every step. It might feel like a lot of work, but the natural way we are operating is changing for the best. This from Cheryl Barnaby.
2: Again, I think there's a lot of um, sort of established opinions and established ways of working. But I have a lot of hope about our current trainees and, you know, the people that are coming up behind them. I think they've got a much better grasp on this than some of us who've been around for a while and, (laughs) you know, who are set in their ways sometimes. But uh, no, I am very hopeful that you know, it's no longer acceptable to ignore this. And it's, you know, this is, again, um, I think a different generation uh, that I have a lot of hope for, actually.
0: With that hope in mind, thanks for joining us again on another episode of Clinical Realities by the Alliance for Rheumatology. And tune in next month for more about unmet need in rheumatology.